We've been going through a series uh, in the book of James. This is our third week, and we've been taking our time through it. And what you'll notice about the context of James 1 here is that it's all about suffering and trial and God's goodness to us and the necessity of it for a mature and a complete faith. And so James continues that in verses uh, 9 through 18. So hear the word of the Lord. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with, with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers falls and its beauty perishes. So also the rich man will fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. It's the word of the Lord. Father, um, we, we stand on your word today, Lord. Lord, I pray that, uh, that you would enable me uh, to get out of the way. Um, Lord, I pray that the, the, the wind of your spirit would direct me as your vessel uh, to bring forth the words that uh, you have for these people. Um, God, we ask that your word uh, would, would pierce our hearts. We know that it's sharper than a double-edged sword. And we need it to pierce us this morning, to make us more like Jesus. So would you prepare our hearts, clear our minds, to have a singular focus, which is on you and your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Yeah, I've come to this realization uh, over the years, and it's this, when you don't know whose you are, everybody gets a say in who you are. Middle school and high school were some awkward years for me. Anybody else? Yeah, you're all liars. <clears throat> People I went to high school with, they can't believe that I'm like somewhat normal now, um, or at least that's what I've been telling myself anyway, maybe I'm not. Um, but I was like a chameleon, you know, like uh, I, I learned how to blend in to whatever crowd that I was in. I mean, I, I can remember, you know, playing baseball and uh, I tried to put my identity in that and um, that went well for the like two games I played well in. And then after that, it wasn't really sufficient. In fact, I became a much better baseball player after I got out of high school, which was frustrating, right? I mean, you get that. And then I went through this other weird stage <laughs> or Megan's got some pictures somewhere of, of this, but where I highlighted the tips of my hair. <laughs> I got an earring, and I wore a Kenny Chesney shell necklace. That was me, yeah. Uh, and this uh, other phase, you know, where I wore, like, Justin work boots, a Carhartt jacket, a cowboy hat, and went deer hunting after school. And, uh, and then I went through this other stage where I wore 
baggy, like, Jinko jeans, Jordans, and oversized t-shirts. If you're of my generation, you know what I mean when I say that. All this to say that, um, you know, if those are you, great, um, but none of those were really me. <laughs> so that was the problem, is that I tried to let whoever I was with kind of tell me who I needed to uh, become. Uh, and, and all those things were, you know, great and fine, except for the frosted tips. That was just a real, that was just a real oversight on my part, real lack of character. But uh, uh, looking at the pictures from high school is humbling to me. Um, and maybe some of you guys could be bold enough to relate, but uh, I didn't have a clue who I was because I was still figuring out whose I was. Um, and it's only when you know who you belong to that you have the courage to be who God has made you to be, no matter what that looks like. I want you to think about your own life because there's nothing more shattering to realize that who you wish to become is not who you are becoming. It's shattering to us to realize that, to figure that out, to see that. And it starts in childhood whenever, you know, you, you thought you were going to be Michael Jordan, but then you get cut from the, you know, the, the rec league or, or middle school basketball team, right? And you're like, oh, they're shattered. But then it, then it goes on. It progresses. It matures. It, it goes on to, you know, you're 35 or 40 and you'd imagine that you'd been married with kids at this point, but you're single with no prospects. Or, or you're, you're, you're 50 and you're, you still haven't figured out the career path. You're not progressing. You're stuck. And we find ourselves in these places where we don't know who we are. And oftentimes it's because we forget whose we are. I'm reading this, these two different books right now that are really interesting that are about, um, they have this one common theme that I didn't realize until I cracked open the second book, and it was this. They're really about holistic spirituality. And uh, both of these guys talk about, they're both pastors, one a little older, one a little younger, and, and their journey has been uh, that ministry has worn them out because they've tried to, to kind of run this race of like American megachurch-like ministry that just wears you out. And, and they both were influenced and brought back down to the ground uh, by God using this guy named Dallas Willard. And here's what Dallas told both of them, and they quote him both in these books. The most important thing about you is not the things that you achieve, but that's it. The most important thing about you is not the things that you achieve, but it's the person that you become. And the person we become, church, is based on the foundation that we build our lives on. And if we build our lives on anything other than the person and work of Jesus, we are on a faulty foundation that's sure to crumble. So what, de what defines us as people? What is it that we base our identities on? Identity is the deepest sense of who you are. What is it that you base that on? You'll hear it come out because it's the, it's the thing that you're most proud to talk about in, in small talk conversation. Or the first thing that you want to mention to someone who doesn't know you. Well, James addresses us from a bunch of different angles this morning. In verses 9 through 11, James says, your social status cannot give definition to your life. But it does change how you should approach God, whether you're rich or whether you're poor. In James 1, 12 through 15, he says, that your unbelieving and sinful heart that is revealed through temptations that you face day by day and that you buy into do not define who you are, but they show us the only hope that we have. And lastly, he says in James 1, 16 through 18, that we have this generous and loving Father who has brought us forth, brought us into existence through His Son, Jesus and his plan is for us to base and stake all of our identity on what Jesus has done. 
Our big idea today is this. Only a life built on Jesus can hold our true identity. Only a life based on Jesus can hold our true identity. Let's dig into verses 9 through 11 here. Um, If you've got a Bible, flip over there with me. First point uh, is this, is that um, our identity cannot be defined by the lives that we build. And let me just tell you where I'm going to go. That's the first point. The second one is this, that our identity is not built on the sin that we commit. And thirdly, our identity is built on the character of a loving and generous father. This is where James takes us to today. So let's look at that first point together. Verses 9 through 11 there. Context is king. And James, the book of James is interesting because it seems like he twists and turns so many times. And it's hard to like stitch it all together. But I've been seeing that this whole, this whole first 19 verses are all about suffering. And so he may go out and he may talk about money and riches, but he's going to come back and say, but blessed is the man who stands steadfast under trial. He, he may talk about these different things, but he comes back to it. He talks about temptation, but he comes back to the steadfastness. And, um, and he's talking about how to struggle through trials and suffering to God's glory so that we can receive the most important thing that any of us could ever set out for in this life. And it's a complete faith. A faith that carries us on to completion. That, that's what we're after. It doesn't matter what happens to our lives. What matters is what happens to our souls. And that's what James is after for these Christians that are suffering. These, these Christians that are struggling. And, and he unpacks this uh, further by speaking about the places that we turn to when we squirm under the trials and temptations that we face. Have you noticed that when you face something that you haven't faced before and it leaves you in a place that you didn't plan to be in and you don't really know what to do and you need wisdom like we talked about last week, have you ever noticed the things that your mind goes to that they never have before? The the, the, the things that you consider that you would have never considered before. Well, James anticipates this for us. So my question to you is, have you considered the security blanket of your own soul? Where do you turn to? You know, our daughter Maggie carries this little ratty blanket around everywhere, right? And it gets ripped up and torn. She doesn't care. It gets ice cream on it. She still carries it with her. It doesn't matter because it gives her comfort. You know, when we grow up, you know, maybe some of you have a blanket in your purse. I don't know. I'm not going to judge you. But our security blankets change, don't they? They change. The first place you turn to is money is what you can see. Because we have this temptation to place our hope and all of our security in things that we can earn and things that we can see because we think they are the most substantial things that nothing in this world can touch. But the problem is this, is that the Scriptures say that we're to build our life on faith. Hebrews 11.1 Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not see, that we don't see. Ephesians 2 says that, you know, that our salvation is given to us through faith. It takes faith to honor God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Hebrews eleven six. 6. He goes on and on and on and talk about this. But the first place that you and I turn often is money. And, and what that reveals to us depends on what our status is. And that's what James digs into. Let me remind you what James 1, 9 through 11 says. He says, let the lowly brother or the poor brother or lowly in status brother or sister Boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. So just as you look at that verse, he's, he's saying it doesn't matter if you're rich or if you're poor. But what matters is how does that affect your faith? So for, for, the, for the poor man, 
he says this, the poor man's identity, the, the lowly in status, the one who doesn't have it all together, who, who finds himself in trial and turns to his possessions and, and, and sees lack, that, he, that this man is tempted uh, in his vulnerable state to despair, to, to look and think that his problem is in his circumstances, right? That, that, that he would look and think, you know, um, if I only had X, then my life would be better. That, that, that's the temptation of a lowly or poor brother in James's day and, and in our day to find our identity in that. If I only had this, then my life would be better. And you can complete the, the sentence. But the lowly brother must refuse to find his identity in what he does not have. Jesus, in fact, says that, our, that our, even our monetary poverty and our spiritual poverty, that they're often connected. And, and you remember what Jesus says in the Beatitudes? I think it's Matthew 5, maybe verse 3. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. That there is something about this need that poverty surfaces in our lives that is good for our souls. That's why Jesus talks often about the rich. That, that you know, riches aren't the problem. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil. But it's just easier to love money when you have more of it, isn't it? It's, it's easier. I, I was talking with someone this week that was uh, mentioning this study. I think it was, might have been Kindle and D Group, but it just said that basically after you earn a certain amount of money, that happiness doesn't change. I don't know what the threshold is. It's around six figures. Once you, once you get to that, that happiness, no matter how high you get or, or anything like that, it doesn't really change, right? So the poor man needs to, if, 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 you're, if you're poor and you're tempted to think about your lack, James says you need to think about the future, you need to think about the future and how you'll be exalted. Like Mephibosheth. You remember him? I love saying his name. You remember him? He was, he was the guy that was crippled because his babysitter dropped him when he was a kid. And, and you know, in that day, they thought that you were kind of cursed because of that. And King David went and found him because he wanted to show kindness to him. And, and the scriptures say that the Mephibosheth sat at the king's table for the rest of the days of his life. He was treated like royalty. We need to think about that and we need to encourage the poor in our midst to do the same thing, to not focus on what we don't have, but to focus on what Jesus is for us. Amen? Secondly, the rich man's identity. He says, the other, on the other hand, the rich man, uh, when he finds himself in, in trials, he can easily turn to his riches for comfort, to his reserve savings, his ability to find the best doctors on the face of the planet, the best medications, his ability to get the best therapy, to take the best trips, to have the space that he needs. And, and we look at this man when he struggles and we think to ourselves, man, I just wish that I could struggle that way. That'd be great to be able to struggle like that. But the thing that you see is that bountiful resources that James would call the, the rich is so isolating and lonely. To have no needs is so isolating and lonely. In, in fact, Look back on your life. The, the, the times that you've been able to supply your own needs were probably the most lonely and isolating times of your life. There is something that need does that forges a community. And James gets that. He gets that trial and he talks about it here. James spends most of his time in these verses addressing the false security of riches. And he says if you're a rich follower of Jesus, here's how you must think in the midst of your trials. You must remember at the end of the day, that all of our material possessions are the equivalent of Monopoly money. Anybody ever play Monopoly? 
Play Monopoly. I love to play Monopoly, actually. I'll take on any of you. But you can't judge me because it's a game. And I was a youth pastor. Uh, the, the, the kids in my youth group, um, they were surprised whenever, uh, whenever we, we rolled the dice because it was like this animal came out. <laughs> and, uh, and I was ruthless and greedy and stingy during the game. And uh, I, would, I would make deals where I would promise things and maybe not supply what I promised and handshake deals under the table. And, you know, I'll give you, you, know, I'll give you free rent if you land on me because I have all these hotels and yada, yada. And anyway, I just stuck it to them, you know. It was just, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> but the, the thing that, that I remember about that time is that at the end of the game, everything went back in the box and we got on with life. They, they wouldn't let it go that easily, but... That's the way I treat it. It's the game, right? And I think that James is, is telling us that we need to think about our riches like we do Monopoly money. Maybe not spend it like you do Monopoly money, but, you know, park place, yeah, sure. You know, uh, but to think about your riches like you do Monopoly money, because here's the deal. At the end of the day, guess what? It all goes back in the box. And so to put your footing and your foundation on something that is so temporal is foolish for us. And James says that we have a temptation to do that if we're afforded that um, opportunity. He says, just like a flower of the field that's beautiful one day and is gone the next day, that's what will happen to your money. So you're going to stake your life on something that's going to disappear. You're going to find yourself in a place you never wanted to be. So, So the rich unbeliever will die a hopeless death in the pursuit of his wealth is what he says. But I think it also, on the flip side of this, addresses the rich believer. For the rich believer, he must, he must live with the type of mindset that Jesus had, humility. And James will go on to talk about this in James 2 when he talks about partiality in the church, the rich and the poor living together. But he says, if you're rich and you follow God and you're, and you're faced with trials and suffering and temptation, do not turn to your riches for hope. No, no, no. Turn to humility. Get on your knees and see yourself as as needy as anyone on the face of the planet because that's the truest sense of who you are. To think like that, to think about the humiliation, is what he says there, of, of, of what it's like to, to place our hope in something that we can see. And he says this knowledge of doing it this way, living life this way, if, you're, if you happen to be someone of means, will keep you centered in the midst of trials so that you can see what God has for you. So so Jesus changes how we view the security or insecurity of money. And that's revealed itself through our trials. If we're poor, we must remember that we'll be exalted. That our hope is not in what we don't have. If we're rich, on the flip side of this, we need to humble ourselves. Because our hope is not in what we do have. And if you can live this way, you might be able to see what God has for you in the midst of a struggle or a trial. So if you think about it like this, James is kind of taking us down this road. You know, imagine your life is a spiritual journey. It's a pilgrimage. You're on this road. The first exit that you want to take when you're in the midst of a trial is money. That's like exit 101. You want to veer off. And so the temptation is to, to keep it straight and keep going down the highway. Don't take that exit ramp. Well, the second place that he talks about is, is really on the sin that we commit, the nature of temptation. So our hope isn't found in the lives that we build through our material possessions. Secondly, our identity is not built on the sin that we commit. So James is still walking us through here. Let's t- turn to verse uh, 12 real quick, James 1.12. He, he kind of gives us a pause in the middle of his um, uh, 
argument here for us, and he wants to remind us of something. He says this, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. So he kind of breaks out of the money talk right before he gets to the temptation talk. He says, for when he stood the test, when he's finished the race, when he's completed what God has for him, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So the crown of life is contingent on love for God. Love for God is contingent upon grace from God, giving us the ability to love God. And the trials get us to the place where we seek God. That's how it all works together. It's this mystery. But the key here is this idea of the crown of life. So, you know, we're, we're, the way that I think about this passage is we all think that, that our, especially in America, our material possessions are, are kind of the crown of life. The thing that, if we could just work this long and save this much and, you know, and maybe get to that next level, then, then we can really experience what it's like to live the good life. To have, in other words, the, the crown of life, right? To be able to do whatever you want to do, whenever you want to do it, with whoever you want to do it to. Like, that's the idea, right? That's what we're going after. That's what freedom is. That's why we define it. But the problem is, is that that type of pursuit never gives you the real crown of life. Now, Jesus shows us another way. Do you remember on the cross? Jesus, let me back up. So there was this guy that came over to my house um, probably three years ago. He was at our church for a couple years. He had been um, incarcerated and found a home in our church and, and was really fitting in well. And, and so we invited them over for dinner one night, and uh, he gave me an interesting gift. He gave me a crown of thorns. He brought it to the, and I'm like, oh, cool. Like, do I wear it? I mean, do you, I mean, where, what do I do with this? And so anyway, it's been sitting in our living room because I don't, I don't think I should wear it. But uh, anyway, it's been sitting in there. And I've been thinking about this, this idea of the crown of life that James talks about. And then Jesus' life, how he wore a crown of thorns, right? Because the soldiers that hoisted Jesus up onto the cross when they, you know, they stripped him naked and, and, uh, and he was about to, to die, uh, from basically suffocation, right, on the cross. Like that was the most painful way to die. They, if it wasn't bad enough, they made a mockery out of him by putting this crown of thorns and they lodged it on his head. So blood was running down his face. That was the real crown of life. That, that was it. But the thing that we try to think about as the crown of life is this, this kind of cheap, plastic princess crown that we can buy, right? This fake gold crown. But the real crown of life is given through the cross in Jesus' humiliation and suffering on the behalf of us so that our sins can be paid for once and for all. The crown of eternal life that Jesus has for us will often feel like a crown of thorns on this side of eternity. Amen? It'll feel like that. But you can't put your trust in something that's so fake. So what that means is, is that we'll suffer, and we'll have trials, and God has designed them uniquely for you, so you can take comfort in that, no matter how painful they are, that God wants to do more for you than you would ever do for yourself, and he knows what's best for us. The trials that we endure are what our Christian life is built for. The crown of eternal life that Jesus has for us is much different than what the world has. You know, it's such a juxtaposition for us. 
you know, you hear people talk about the problem of pain. You know, C.S. Lewis wrote about it, and it's this, it's this idea that, you know, how can a good God let so much bad stuff happen, right? You know what I never hear about? The problem of happiness. You know what the problem of happiness is? The problem of, of, of happiness uh, why, is this. Why in the world would God give me another day to live? Why in the world would God give me another meal to eat? Why in the world would God give me another day to enjoy my family and my friends? Another moment with my coworkers, Another chance to breathe and enjoy all that he is this side of eternity. I never hear people wondering about that since the world is so sinfully troubled. Never hear people questioning that because we don't have a high view of mercy. We don't think that we need grace. We think that we've earned it and that we deserve it. But when you're willing to embrace the crown of thorns and to see that as the crown of life, you know, crucifying our flesh, being willing to humble ourselves, being needy among our brothers and sisters, we're getting a little bit more what it looks like to walk out this Christian life through our trials and our, and our suffering. The everlasting life that Jesus has stored for us in heaven is for those who finish the race, church, still loving God. Still loving God. So as we struggle through the trial, we not, we not only try to build our identity on our riches, but, but James comes back and he, he gives us that pause about the crown of life, and then he, he digs into a, an inward struggle that we have, right? The next, the next exit that the enemy wants you to take is, is if it's not the riches, it's, it's, this, it's, it's to entice us to turn toward God when we see sin in our hearts. So James goes on now how, how, how we need to meet God in the middle of that. Is God out to get me? Does God hate me? What have I done to deserve this? You ever ask those questions? In the midst of trial and temptation? Sure you have. So, so what James does is he addresses the nature of temptation. So what's actually going on when you're tempted? What is it? Let me, let me read what it, what, it's, what it says. Because James says this, that that temptation is revealed through our trials, but it's not caused by God, and it's not caused by our circumstances. In fact, it's caused by our own sinful hearts. That's exactly what leads you into trouble. So listen to what he says, James 1, 13 through 15. Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Underline that. You need to remember that. It's not God. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. So, so our trials will take us to temptations that we've never experienced before to teach us things that we've never learned before. So, so as you think about this, I want you to consider this truth, that temptation has more to do with what's in our hearts than what's in the world. Let me say it again. Temptation has more to do with what's in your heart than what's in the world. I love what uh, John Owen says in his little treatise on the theology of sin. It's called um, On the Mortification of Sin. You want some light bedtime reading, I'd recommend it. It's great. But there's this great, like, just million-dollar quote, and it's worth the price of the book. It says, trials and temptations put nothing into a man. No, no, no. They do something else. They only draw out what was in him before. 
And that can be the scariest thing that we see when we see ourselves heading down a road, uh, you know, temptation through the trial, and we're, we're beginning to consider things that we never considered before. The fact that that lived in us all along absolutely terrifies me. It just didn't show its face before this. It should terrify you too. Here's what James says. He's, he's, trying to, he's trying to push us down lower, lower, lower so that he can reveal the most beautiful thing about our identity in God. That's what he's trying to do. So he, he breaks down temptation. It's not like, oh yeah, temptation, you shouldn't, you shouldn't, shouldn't go into that. No, no, he talks about the mechanics of how it works in your mind and your heart. He says this, desires surface through trial. So we see these exit ramps to escape the pain that we're experiencing in life. It, it might look like an addiction. Uh, it might look like turning to your money and trying to fix it with your money. Uh, it might look like turning the blame on someone else, like, like uh, James addresses when we turn the, the temptation back toward God, like it was something he did. And, and you see this live out in your own life. You see it play out in your kid's life. We squirm when we get caught red-handed, don't we? So he says, desire surface through trial. Secondly, I, this, is, this is what I see happening in the garden, in the temptation of Adam and Eve. Our minds linger with the devil. All right? And, and the concept of compromise from God's design is agreed upon. So when you go to look back at Genesis chapter 3, when, when Eve was tempted by Satan, the first time she responds, she refutes the lie. The problem is, is she didn't do what James would later suggest, to resist the devil and he'll flee from you, like to, to just shut him down, like you have the power to do that. You're God's child. But she lingered around and took the bait of compromise. And, and the longer that you linger with temptation, the more likely you are to give into it. You see, temptation is actually not the problem. You know, and, and a lot of times, this is 1 Corinthians 10, I don't have time to get into it this morning, but... 1 Corinthians 10 talks about how we haven't been tempted beyond our own ability, but that God will provide a way of escape through endurance. I'm paraphrasing a little bit here, but that's basically what it says. We think that because we have temptation, there's something wrong with us. That's not what the Scriptures teach. What the Scriptures teach is that God's plan to sanctify us is when we are tempted, He gives us the strength to endure. And, and the strength to endure today uh, will be enough grace to endure the temptation if we choose to obey what he set out before us. But you can't think about on down the road, how am I going to you know, resist the devil? He gives us grace for the day. He gives us daily bread to endure this life. So our minds linger with the devil and, and our, our thought life uh, compromises with God's design and sin is all of a sudden birth. Desire in our hearts and minds gives birth to sin, number three. So our hearts or the center of who we are. They grab on to something outside of God's design and try to attach it to who we are. Does that make sense? It could be any kind of compromise. We typically think about sexual compromise here because of just the way the world works, and oftentimes that's the case, but it's broader than that too. It's anytime you try to, 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 to live outside of God's design. It could, be, it could be with your money. It could be with the way that you, you treat other people. It could be sexually, all of those types of things. And so when that, when that is birthed and, and it's agreed upon and it's compromised, he says this, sin grows like an unstoppable force in our hearts that leads to death. Sin grows like a wildfire that can't be put out. That's what happens. That's where you are outside of Christ right now. 
you're dead. And most of the time, most of the time we are unwilling to acknowledge that. We're unwilling to consider the fact that the wages of sin is death. That's what it is. And so we delay. We, we don't come to Christ. We come to anything else that we can find. But there, there's no amount of protection this world can give us that can save us from sin. Don't you feel hopeless when you think about that? I'm looking for something to turn to. Oh, money won't help, James says. I'm looking for someone to blame. The only person to blame is yourself, you know? You feel hopeless, right? That's because only dead people want to come to life. That's because people that, only people that are dead in their sins and trespasses and believe that with all that they are are willing to receive good news. you got to believe the bad news before you'll ever receive the good news. So that's why James takes us down this road and he shares the most beautiful news with us in verses 16 through 18. Here's what he says. And, and to lead up to this, our lives can't be built on the, 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 the possessions we acquire or the sin that we commit. So whether you want to struggle with self-righteousness and all the things that you've earned for yourself or you, whether you want to struggle with unrighteousness and all the sin you've committed, God could never love me. He says this is off the table because your salvation is not based on you at all. Amen? It's not. And here's what he says in verses 16 through 18. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Listen to verse 18. Of his own will, of his own choosing, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. In other words, don't be deceived into thinking that God is anything but good and that our sinful behaviors are anyone else's responsibilities than our own. Don't go there. Don't take those exit ramps because neither one of them will lead you to the crown of life. Neither one of them will give you what you're after. If we don't believe in our hearts, if we don't believe that in our hearts, we can be a lot of things, but there's one thing we can't be, and that's a Christian. We must believe that our sin deserves death. And then we're going to squirm under the trial, and it's going to reveal what's inside of us. We ought not be afraid of that as Christians, because God wants to take our souls to a deeper place than he's ever taken them before, to give us joy that we've never experienced before, that's non-circumstantial. And he reveals this beautiful character of our Father in heaven, the Father of lights, he calls him. Although while you're in your trials and you see your tendency to trust your money and your, your, your tendency to get in despair because of your, your sin, that doesn't define who you are. That you are more than the accumulation of material possessions. That we ought not to size people up based on the car they drive or the house they have or whether they live or, you know, what kind of job, white collar, blue collar, doesn't matter, no collar, doesn't matter, right? So we ought not to size people up like that because that's not what ultimately matters in life. You are more than the accumulation of your sin. Let me say that again. You are more than the accumulation of your sin. The devil wants to tell you everything else but that. He wants to convince you that that's who you are, that's what you've become, that there is no victory, there is no hope in your life. And Jesus says that that's a bunch of bull. It's, it's in the Bible, okay? Our sin brought forth death. It birthed death. And that's who we became. It became our identity. 
And sin is the only contribution that we give in the equation of salvation. It's the only thing we give. But because God only gives good and perfect gifts to His children, and because He never changes and He always stays the same, as James says, God has decided to do the most generous thing imaginable for us. To give us not a second chance, but a second Adam. Because a second chance, still, still feel like God's just out to get you. And we, we treat grace like that sometimes. That, oh, you know, I really blew it. God gave me a second chance, I just blew it. God didn't give you a second chance. He gave you a second life, a second Adam to base everything that you are on. And death cannot hold Jesus Christ down. Therefore, sin cannot hold you down, church. And that's the best thing that God could ever give us. And we forget it so often. And the Word says that he did this of his own will, that it was his idea that for God so loved the world that he gave his son, that he saw us in our humble estate, he saw us in our lowliness, and he wanted to do the most generous thing imaginable, to give Jesus to us so that we could base all that we are on all that he is through the gospel. That's what he's come to do for us. Listen to what Paul writes about in Titus chapter 3. He talks about this idea of a new birth. That, that's what happens if you're interested in Jesus today. That's what's happened. You've been given a new birth, right? I mean, you might be faking it. I don't know. But if you're a Christian, you haven't gotten a second chance. You've got a second life. Listen to how he writes it in Titus chapter 3, verse 4 through 7. He says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. That regeneration is new life. Ezekiel talks about it as a, as a new heart, you know? Replacing the heart of stone with a heart of flesh. Jesus talked about it by being born again. That's that idea of regeneration. That you don't need a second chance. You need a second life. And that's what Jesus has become for us. And he goes on to say this whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. God came to change our identity, and it has little to do with what we've done in this life. It has everything to do with what he has given to us in the person of Jesus. And, and he's meant to do this to show the world who he is. He says that our salvation, this new identity that we have from the Father of life to the person the work of Jesus Christ, is like a, a first fruits offering to the world to show them who our Father in heaven is. And so when, our, when his grace in our lives is on display, man, it is like a megaphone to the world that you are not the accumulation of your sins, that you are not the accumulation of your wealth, you are the accumulation of who you have become in Jesus Christ. And that is everything. And we spend a life, church, becoming what, what Jesus says we are. It's this sanctification road. We want to be further along than we are always, right? But praise God we're not what we were. Jesus has come to do this in ever-increasing manner. Because of this, we don't need to be afraid to be in process. Only a life built on Jesus can hold our true identity. God loves us, church. It might take more faith than you think you have to actually believe that. But to be bare before God, bare no good works to offer, 
only your sin to offer, and to believe that he still loves you. A person that can have faith like that will be a person that God uses to change the world because he's not afraid of the world, not afraid of what the world can do to him. And this means that, as James says, our trials are a gift to us to uproot any false nation that we are lovable because of what we've accumulated in self-righteousness or that we are so unlovable because of our sin and unrighteousness. Both of those exit ramps will lead to death. But only in Jesus Christ do we have hope. Have you placed your faith, your trust, staked your life on that? Let's pray. Father, the most important thing about us is not what we achieve, but it's who we become. And because you have given us Jesus, we are becoming eternal beings, completely lovable by you because of your son Jesus. God, most of us in this room have a very hard time believing that. And so we squirm and we bail and we don't let the trials that we face perfect us on this journey that we have, this pilgrimage that we have toward you. So God, would you meet us in the middle of this this morning in a, uh, in a profound way, Lord? And for those in this room, God, who, Lord, I mean, they're, they're dead in sin this morning, bound for hell apart from you. I pray that there would be a divine intersection through the power of your Holy Spirit to wake up their hearts from the dead, that it would be such a compulsion that they wouldn't be able to leave this place without receiving you. Father of lights. Lord, make it be more true in us. It's in Jesus' name, amen.